620 years ago today, Johannes Gutenberg was born. Of course, no one knows exactly when he was born because there weren't a lot of books to write things down in. He fixed that problem and invented modern culture as we know it. Salut, c'est John de Glasgow en Écosse et vous écoutez un épisode spécial des archives d'Akimbo. I don't think there's any way to deny the fact that books and then magazines, newspapers, radio, television, the internet, media changed the culture. It changes the culture every day. It changes the culture in ways large and small, mostly that we don't even notice. But the people who make media, they notice and they pay attention. What they pay attention to most of all is how to make money. And there are two ways to make money, and both of them are related. One is to sell advertising. But in order to sell advertising, you need to focus on number two. Number two is distribution. How do we get the word out there? How do we get people to read or watch or listen to what we make? Distribution determines the media, and media determines the culture. So let's start with books. Books were distributed at the very beginning to libraries, but soon after that, once they were affordable, it was about bookstores. Bookstores used to be owned by publishers, but pretty soon after that, they became independent. And the independent bookseller became the heart of the book industry because there's a limited number of slots on the shelves. If you can't make the booksellers happy, you're not going to get a slot. If you don't get a slot, you're not going to sell. So the book publishing world as we know it grew up around one simple idea. The customer is the bookseller. What makes the bookseller happy? What terms does the bookseller want? What's the timing the bookseller prefers? Reviews. Well, reviews matter to the booksellers, so let's make sure we get good reviews. Only 20 or 30 years ago did chain stores start to matter. And when Barnes & Noble really kicked in, they decided to give a significant discount for all books that were bestsellers, specifically all books that were on the New York Times bestseller list. If they gave you a discount and they put you at the front of the store, you sold more copies. You made the bookseller happy. You sold more copies. And so the entire focus of a big chunk of bookselling became How do I get on the list? But then it shifted again, and it shifted probably for the last time. It shifted to the world of Amazon, to the world of unlimited shelf space, to the world of the last independent bookseller doesn't matter so much because Amazon doesn't care what kind of book they sell as long as someone buys one because Amazon will stock every single book, even books with offensive titles, even books that the bookseller doesn't like. This long tail, this infinite collection of books, means that the bookseller isn't the customer anymore. It means that planning six months or a year in advance doesn't matter anymore. It means we're shifting from a world where 5,000 books were published every couple weeks to a world where 5,000 books are published every day. Anyone can publish a book, and anyone does. 
You don't even need paper anymore. You don't even need money anymore to get an inventory together. You just press print, send it to the Kindle, and you're done. As a result, the distribution has changed what books are getting published, what books are getting read. There are three factors at work then, all dancing with each other. The first one is the filter bubble, coined by Eli Pariser. It's the idea that when you give people a choice, they tend to consume media that they agree with, ignoring the stuff that they disagree with. The second is the long tail, Chris Anderson's brilliant insight that when you give people a choice, they take the choice. And with unlimited shelf space, people have to take a choice. It means that half of the titles that Netflix has ever rented, Blockbuster never ever carried. That half of the books that Amazon has sold, Barnes & Noble has never ever carried. What it means is that as shelf space gets longer and longer, there are still hits, but there are plenty of titles out on the long tail that aren't hits, that are only appealing to a small group. When Chris first wrote about this, when Eli first wrote about this, the critics poo-pooed it. They pointed out that the Super Bowl was still there, that CBS News was still there, that there were still hits and cross-pollination. But years later, as every year passes, we see that both of them are right. And the third factor is this idea of curation, self-censorship, industry standards, that in movies, in comics, in books, wherever there was an industry that needed to deal with a tight distribution model, standards set in. Because standards of quality, community standards, if they weren't met, then the distributors and the people who spoke for the distributors, including the government, would say to these forms of media, don't do that. And they responded. And there was a race to the top. A quality ratchet was in place. But once you get rid of that, once you get rid of this distribution bottleneck where everything is going to be carried on the long tail of the Internet, there's less and less incentive for self-censorship. And we get a coarsening of our culture, because it's the coarsening that people pay attention to. The same thinking about distribution applies to television. Television was granted a monopoly by the FCC in the United States and by governments in other countries. In the U.S., every city had pretty much three stations, three networks that gathered together local stations to put together national programming. But if there's only three networks, you can't afford to do edgy broadcasting because it's inevitable that you will lose market share. And if you lose market share, you don't make as much in advertising. That's too expensive. So there was a move to make it average, to make average TV for average people because that's what could get distributed. That's what would get paid for by CBS or NBC. It turns out that if you tried to serve a specific audience, one that the advertisers didn't covet, shows like the Beverly Hillbillies or Hee Haw, or even Star Trek at the beginning, your show got canceled. It got canceled because it couldn't make as much in advertising revenue as a more average show. 
This limited distribution led to what I think of as the American century. Americans could afford to spend more money than anyone else producing TV shows. The money showed through on the stuff that was made, and the shows got picked up around the world. So people around the world grew up watching American sitcoms with their two-car garages, with no real problems of existence, just the small problems of sophisticated upper-middle-class life. As a result, this move to the middle homogenized the way people thought about the culture. And it wasn't just about the fiction. The news worked the same way. News was done as a service, a service in exchange for the distribution that the government had granted. As a result, the news went down the middle. There were also standards. There were standards that were agreed upon by the broadcasters, words that they weren't going to use, topics they weren't going to cover, behaviors they weren't going to celebrate. But then the distribution changed. In this example, it changed to cable. With cable, there aren't three channels. There's 300. With cable, if you try to broadcast to the middle, you're going to lose. You need to make shows about food. Not just about food, but about food for foodies. You need to make shows about sports. Not just about sports, but dangerous sports. You need to make news, news that's not actually true, but is entertaining to a small group of people, and on and on. But it still costs a lot of money to make TV. And as a result, an inherent conservatism kicks in. You want to spend enough money to make it good, but not too much money that you'll lose money. You want a precise audience, but not too small an audience, because if you don't have enough, you can't sell the ads. Sure, there are exceptions like HBO and PBS, but in general, that was the mantra. And then, as always, it changed again. YouTube showed up. Now you can make a show for nothing. So James Corden, who comes from the heritage of three TV networks, does a driving in cars with celebrities thing, a karaoke with Paul McCartney. Speaking words of wisdom, let it be. Last time I checked, it had about 5 million views. Probably cost a quarter of a million dollars to shoot that thing. Right next to it, on the most popular video list, is a video of a teenage girl showing other teenage girls how to put on makeup. For those of you that are new to this video, welcome to my channel. And for those of you that are here on Tuesday, well, I'm back with the same shirt. In fact, my whole look is the same because I just filmed it. Look at me go. It costs nothing to make. With a million or a billion channels, with new videos being uploaded faster than new videos can be watched, the rules have changed again. Distribution changes what gets made. The next example I'll tell you is about the movies. The movies of the 40s and the 50s and the 60s were based around directors, they were based around connections, and they were based around movie stars. And the model was pretty simple. The model was there weren't that many theaters. So you would roll out your movie to the biggest theater in the biggest cities because those consumers wanted something that was new. You'd push hard to get good reviews. If the movie opened well, you'd open in more theaters in that city. And then you'd go to the suburbs 
and then eventually, months and months later, you'd show up everywhere. This model was upended by Steven Spielberg with his movie Jaws. A movie with few recognizable big stars. But Jaws broke a rule. Jaws opened wide. It opened in all the theaters at once on a summer weekend. Television became the engine for these blockbuster movies. The theater owners weren't going to take the giant risk of putting an untested movie in every single theater. So the movie studio spent almost as much money on the TV ads about the movie as they spent on the movie itself. Run a ton of ads on Thursday so that on Friday, lots of people would go and make the theater owners happy. Make sure the movie was simple enough that you could tell enough of the story in a 30-second ad that people would come. And then a week or two later, you've exhausted the market, time to move on. The distribution changed what was getting made. Stephen Metcalf, in his great New Yorker article on the topic, explains that what happened next was Blockbuster. The video rental places existed because a VCR tape of a movie cost 100 bucks. No one was going to buy that for home use. But the video rental people could buy it once and rent it again and again. In short order, they were buying $4 billion worth of videotapes every year. It was a huge gift for Hollywood. It changed the distribution. And as a result, the movies that got made also changed. Now, a bankable star in a mediocre brain-dead movie, it could get made. Why? Because the studios knew that once all the great movies got watched, the video rental person, the person who's looking for something to rent tonight, would pick it up if it had Tom Hanks on the cover or Julia Roberts. And that system worked for a while. But then, yes, you guessed it, the distribution changed again. And so now we have Netflix making more movies every year than Sony, Warner Brothers, and Disney put together. Their model is the long tail model. Their model says, we don't need to please everyone. We don't want to please everyone. We need to figure out how to go to the edges, to whatever edge is going to reach the audience we seek to reach. So why should we care about this? Well, there are two things happening. On one hand, new forms of expression are able to exist because distribution has changed. Consider rap and hip-hop. Technology enabled rap and hip-hop to exist because people, musicians, artists, without a lot of money, could use technology to make music good enough to listen to at home or in a cheap studio. But the real shift was the fact that the program directors at radio stations and the purchasing agents at record stores didn't like, didn't want to carry, didn't think they could get away with promoting hip-hop. And so they didn't. And it was only when The Long Tail and Spotify showed up. Only then were the people able to get what they wanted. The same thing's true for podcasts. There's way more podcasts today than there were TV shows in 1958 because there's no channel they have to be forced through. The chances that someone's going to make The Tonight Show of podcasts are very low. 
because the market doesn't want average stuff for average people. It wants what it wants. We went through this with blogs as well. So all this independence, all these new voices are able to show up. But number one, few of them are able to make a good living because there isn't scarcity of spectrum and carriage, that there aren't a finite number of channels. So it gets split and split and split. That's the same reason that very few real estate brokers make a lot of money. Because as soon as they start making a lot of money, other real estate brokers show up in the same neighborhood. So that's one side of the coin. That is, more voices talking to more people with messages that they want to hear. The other side is that there is an inherent self-curation, self-censorship, self-quality ratchet that goes into place when there's scarcity. In the case of the comic books, it was the comics code inflicted against the comics industry against its will by a crusader who had sort of some nonsense ideas, but ended up, as a result, creating a floor, a platform, for comics to go in one direction as opposed to racing to the bottom. The same thing happened when the broadcasters got together and invented broadcast standards. Sure, they stopped some big ideas from getting shared, but they also established a standard of quality, a standard of acceptability in the things that were being broadcast. We see the same things happening in the book industry. In the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, there were edgy books being published, but it wasn't a free-for-all. It wasn't a free-for-all because they had to please the booksellers. The distribution caused the publishers to apply more curation. So as we go forward, what we're going to be looking at is a dance between these two things. Independent voices talking to audiences that want to listen to them, contrasted with society as a whole's desire for ideas and images that edify us. That we don't need to spread invective, angry rumors, tearing down things that are good, conspiracy theories, guttural language, ideas that corrupt our kids. That's not something that most people want in the culture. So going forward, I think we have to realize that the distributor is us. That the distributor, the person who's going to spread the idea, is as responsible for that as the network executive was, as the bookstore owner was. That the ideas that we share are the ideas that spread. And the ideas that spread are the ideas that win. So when we choose to spread an idea that is corrosive, that tears things down, that takes us away from thoughtful interaction, I think we have to accept the responsibility that we are the distribution now. And we need to own the outcome that comes with that. In a minute, we'll be back with answers to your questions from last episode. Thanks for listening. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. Two good questions this episode. And as always, if you've got a question, I'd love to hear it. Visit akimbo.link, A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, 
and press the appropriate button. Hi, Seth. This is John, and I grew up in Rochester, New York. In your most recent episode, you describe how evaluating people in our emerging economy will be based more on their work than the type of information traditionally available in a resume. My question is, why shouldn't this have always been the case even prior to the development of the mesh? Here's how software used to get made. There used to be a really big building with a hierarchy, with a librarian, with a system architect, with a project manager, and with tons of programmers who were signed to work on little tiny pieces of the big hole. But thanks to Linus Torvald and many other pioneers of the open source movement, what we have instead is GitHub. GitHub, a place where programmers from all over the world can work on open source software, submitting their suggestions and watching that code get committed to the overall base of code that is used by millions of other people. If you want to hire a programmer, it sure makes sense to look at what they've done on GitHub. GitHub is a playground, an open place where freelancers can show up, participate in the mesh, contribute, and make things better. And what's happening now is we're seeing this in so many other areas of work. That it used to be that not only did we care about teamwork, but we had no ability to tease apart who did what. But now, if you're particularly skilled at a task, your fingerprints are all over that task. If you're a brand manager, show me your brand. Show me what you led. Show me what you built. If you're a copywriter, show me your copy. Show me the response rates. If you're a web designer, show me the sites that you've built. Yes, there are times when you're deep in group work and it can't be part of your portfolio. But if your portfolio doesn't speak for who you are, you're doing yourself a disservice. Because now more than ever, each of us can do our best work on our own and expose it to the world. So that's the reason, John, that we couldn't do it in the 50s or the 60s or the 70s. You were part of the Borg, the giant faceless entity. But now, if you've got chopped, if you're the kind of person we want to hire, show me your commits. Show me the work you've done. Hey, Seth, you've answered several questions recently and talked about the tension. And I know you talk about the tension in the marketing seminar too. And I think for most of us, we're not aware of the tension that you're talking about. And then once we do become aware of it, I think it's such a fine-tuned skill that you really understand and recognize. I think it would be helpful for all of us if we could get a deeper understanding of tension the way that you see it and how you apply it. Thanks. Thanks, Wendy. You're right. I do bring up the tension, and I probably haven't teased it apart as well as I should. So let me take a minute or two here to try to do that. We got taught for 12 or 16 years at school that our job was to get an A, that if we are defective, we fail, we are reprocessed, sent back a grade, and had to do it again. This idea that we better be right, that we better be perfect, that we better get it all correct, goes deep within us. And the industrialists wanted that to happen because it makes us a better factory worker. It makes us better at following specific instructions. And when something comes along that might not work, 
we feel the tension. The tension of experiencing two things at the same time. This might work. That'd be great. This might not work. I'm going to be doomed. The tension exists when we feel both of those at the same time. And if you're not feeling both of those at the same time, then you're probably not doing your best work. You're probably not having your most honest relationships. You're probably not inventing the future. You're simply a victim of the future. So this tension isn't something to avoid. It's something to seek out. Because that's what it is to be a professional today. To go to that place where we feel, as Steve Pressfield calls it, the resistance. The resistance, think about the tension in a rubber band, pulling us away from the place where we might be able to make a difference. And I think it's possible to learn that when that tension shows up, we should lean toward it, not away from it. It's possible to learn that that's actually our job that as a professional, when we are writing or speaking or typing or engaging or inventing, the tension, that place where we feel it, that is what we're getting paid to do. That's when our chance shows up for us to do our best work. Thanks for listening. We will see you next week. Visit akimbo.link to share a question. There's a big problem that's changing everything about the world as we know it. Carbon and the impact of humans on the earth. We talk about it with words like climate change and global warming. But there's just two really important things that you need to know about it. First, this is an overwhelmingly big problem. So much so that it's likely that you feel as though your choices don't matter in the face of it. Second, that overwhelming feeling that I just mentioned, it's intentional. It was put there by design. The industries that make the biggest environmental impact have a vested interest in you feeling overwhelmed and powerless. They've marketed, lobbied, and schemed to create that feeling in all of us. In short, we've been lied to. But here's the good news. There's a lot you can do to make a difference. And the other good news is that there's still time. The Carbon Almanac is a book and project about these problems and what we can do to solve them. It was created and run by volunteers on the premise that it's not too late, but none of us can fix this problem on our own. We need each other. There are many ways to get involved, but simply learning more is a great start. Here are three steps you can take. First, go to thecarbonalmanac.org and sign up for the Daily Difference emails. They give you a short thought and a practical action that you can take alongside thousands of others every day. Second, get the Carbon Almanac book. It's full of facts, articles, graphs, and art. It's beautiful and fun to engage with. It's all footnoted and fact-checked. And importantly, it's made by volunteers whose only agenda is to solve these systemic issues. You can find it wherever books are sold. Finally, since you're listening to a podcast, search for the Carbon Almanac wherever you're listening. You'll find the Carbon Almanac podcast network and a few shows featuring expert insight, discussion, inspiration, and ways to take action. There's even a show just for kids. Do what appeals to you. Just do something. There's still time to make a huge difference in the future of the planet, but we can't solve this on our own. Join us.